This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE IntelliNews. In the Cold War, Russia and China were fremenies. But over the last several years, they've grown rapidly closer together, partly driven by tensions that they share with the West. I sat down with Jia Qingkuo, who's the Dean of the School of International Studies at the Peking University, to discuss how this relationship is developing, and more specifically, how the One Belt, One Road project will affect not only Russia, but all of the countries in the region. So this is what I wanted to talk in so much as the relationship between China and the West, and specifically China and Eurasia, Russia included, has been developing extremely quickly. And we've been covering it from our side, um, watching Chinese investors come into Belarusia, set up an industrial park there as what seems to be a manufacturing bridgehead looking at the whole European market. And of course the, the, the Belt and Roads project is about delivering goods from Asia and creating a land route of trade, which is Goldman Sachs is going to be the fastest growing trade route on the planet mm. going forward. And on our side, the Russians and several other countries have come together in the Euro- Eurasia Economic Union. And I was curious to just sort of swap notes in so much as we had an opinion piece the other day saying that one of the reasons why Putin's been pushing this project mm. from the beginning is that he sees this relationship with China developing, or Asia in general, but of course led by China. And that by bringing all the Central European and former Soviet countries together into the Eurasia Economic Union, it gives them a bigger block in order to make the relationship between China and Eurasia a little bit more balanced, Mm. rather than the danger that Russia faces is becoming a raw materials appendage to China. Is that correct way to look at it from your side? Well, that's also my understanding. I think it's a good thing because it uh, gives uh, Russia more confidence. And then this is very important for us to uh, expand our cooperation. Okay. If one of the parties is not confident, then uh, it's very difficult to cooperate. But I think probably there is too much expectation uh, with regard to how this uh, route uh, would uh, deliver. There are a lot of difficulties to overcome to Such make as good use of this route. What in particular? Among other things, you know, first, it's a very long land route. Okay. The reason that it hasn't been used uh, more efficiently is economic feasibility. How can you make a railroad uh, going such a distance be profitable. The second thing is uh, we have different track systems. Yes. Uh, the Russians have, in Central Europe, have the Russian standard and China, uh, China has its own standard. So uh, to get trains changed into different track systems can delay uh, time. Uh, and the... also there is the question of uh, political stability of the countries on the route. Central Asian states especially, uh, you know, a lot of things are happening there. So uh, the potential for instability is still quite high. And finally, you know, we're facing the problem of corruption and bureaucratism, and these countries also suffer quite seriously from these uh, problems. 
So to make that route economically viable, there is a big challenge. So let's go through the points one by one. Um, the first point to make, I think, is that China seems to have committed itself to doing this in so much as all these problems are well known, but um, they want to go ahead in so much as huge investments already gone in. But the, the economic viability um, isn't the advantage of a land route if you go by train. The transmission, the, the, tra the shipping times are cut dramatically from months to, I think, under two weeks, isn't it, if you send goods by train? Uh, certainly. Uh, you know, if you can do it, then the, you can cut uh, the transportation time. The problem is uh, for each train, each train can carry only so, so much goods. It's not like a big ship, you know, yes. <laughs> it can carry a huge uh, amount of uh, goods. But then that means that you're going to send the higher value goods by train and you're going to keep the ships for, for, the, for the bulk goods. Uh, that's a good idea, but um, it's uh, still a question of uh, how you can make good use of this uh, route, uh, whether you have sufficient goods uh, in both ways. Isn't there a political dimension to this? I was reading a book recently about geopolitics and the advantage of this route is that it is overland, and given that there's a growing rivalry, it seems, between uh, Asia, Russia, and the United States, the United States is a maritime power, and if you send goods by ships, then you're exposed to interference, you know, relations get worse, but the advantage of having a, a land route is that America is totally taken out of the game, and this transport route is you know, safe, secure irrespective of what the relationships are. Is, is that a factor? If, if we assume the worst uh, is happening, then even the land route is not safe, given the current level of uh, military technologies. I think the, the land route is equally uh, vulnerable mm. uh, if, uh, uh, you know, extreme situation happens. Uh, given what's happening, I don't think that kind of extreme scenario uh, is likely. But still, uh, it, it removes the possibility of pressure, of uh, you know, blockades, and what have you. I think the U.S. attaches a lot of importance to freedom, freedom of navigation mm. uh, in the high seas. It's uh, probably more important to the U.S. than to probably any other country. So, uh, to uh, institute a military blockade uh, would undermine that kind of interest uh, as much as uh, uh, what it can gain. So uh, probably it's only under extreme circumstances can this kind, kind of thing happen. There's a lot talked about Russia's turn to the east and in a way the Belt and Road, the, the link is the manifestation of that. At the same time people have said that Russia and China traditionally are not natural friends. But to what extent is that changing now? It seems that China and Russia have more and more interests aligned, and that, at least on the Russian side, there's a very genuine interest in developing this, not just for the money, but I mean for strategic reasons too. I think it's uh, very important for the two countries to uh, uh, develop closer relations precisely for strategic reasons. I think uh, China uh, is also genuine. In, in developing closer links with Russia. But then uh, the reason that we are cooperating more closely is in part reflects that both sides 
feel the pressure from the West, from the U.S. especially. So we need to, to develop closer economic, military, and other kinds of relationship to resist this kind of pressure uh, effectively. I think in the long run, uh, this kind of route can be more feasible you know, as China's Western part develops better uh, than now. At the moment, the China's Western part is still quite underdeveloped. So Belt and Road serves one important purpose, you know, one of the important purposes of Belt and Road initiative is to promote the economic development of the western part of China. This is the, the Northwest Territories that are in the, right. under the belly of Russia and Central Asia. Right, so, so that China's economy can be more balanced. Mm -hmm. okay. The western part so is, a big is lagging domestic, behind. There's a big domestic agenda here as oh, well. Oh, certainly, certainly. Uh, I think the western provinces probably also realize that this is a golden opportunity. So this, they seize you know, the opportunity to, to uh, get more resources for their uh, provinces. You, you mentioned the political instability, um, particularly in Central Asia, and the corruption there. Um, however, looking at countries in Central Asia, Belarus too is also a good example, that um, the, they've been very disappointed with the amount of help and investment that they've got from the West in anything other than raw materials. And part of the appeal of cooperating with China is it's going into you know, economic multiplying investments in infrastructure, rail, uh, heavy manufacturing uh, industry, things like that. And we see there's a whole reorientation, I mean, to Russia's detriment to some extent. They've turned away from Russia, which has been the big investor and partner, and looking much more to China. And that in itself brings prosperity and stability. I mean, doesn't the investment into the Belt and Road by itself solve some of those problems to some extent, reducing the political instability because of the prosperity. Yeah, if they try or want to seize this opportunity and try to make good use of this uh, Belt and Road Initiative, I think certainly they need to uh, make changes, uh, reforms to uh, uh, overcome this kind of problem. Uh, I think um, uh, this is good for them uh, if they manage to deal with this issue. I think closer relationship between China and the Central uh, Asian states is good for Russia as well. I mean, if these countries develop, then Russia would benefit as well because this is a question of rich neighbors and poor neighbors. <laughs> it's always good or better to have rich neighbors than poor neighbors. Um, and Russia itself, it's going to be a beneficiary, but isn't it just a sort of way station? Because the ultimate goal is to link, you know, there are three supermarkets at the moment. There's uh, the Americas, there's Europe, and then there's Asia with your anchor economies. But in some senses, Russia is just a way station on the way to the Western European markets? Uh, at the moment, uh, it looks like it. Uh, but the problem is, uh, you know, it depends on Russia how to make good use of this opportunity uh, to uh, develop, develop closer relationship with China. If the relationship is good, uh, you know, if the economic relationship expands, then the, uh, you know, the Belt and Road uh, arrangement uh, can be, uh, you know, a major link uh, between Russia 
and China, economically speaking. So it depends on how much they uh, they they manage to make good use of this system, rather than you know uh, something else. Basically, at the moment, uh, people tend to think that way. But if Russia makes good use of the 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 link, then they can benefit a lot. To me, the relationship between Russia and China has deepened or gone into a new phase. Um, until recently, you know, the big deals were, example, the, the gas deal with Gazprom, the $400 billion gas uh, delivery contract, which needs the power of Siberia pipeline and, and all of that. But more recently, the, uh, the Chinese have set up the China-Russia Investment Fund, which is working together with the Russia Direct Investment Fund. And I think over the last 18 months, um, it's actively been buying minority stakes in big Russian uh, raw material producers particularly. Uh, it was the Rosneft is, is the most famous one, 14% uh, there. But also they've been participating in SBOs in uh, Polyus Gold and there was another one in Sabur, mm. uh, Petrochemical, where they're taking stakes in this. And that's not government to government anymore, but that's still state investment agencies, but very specifically targeting mm. companies to put people on board. Mm -hmm. um, what does this signify, though? I mean, does that mean the Chinese are going to get more involved at a sort of working level with Russia's main companies to sit on the boards to promote their interests? Is, is that the plan? Well, certainly. Uh, China wants to hedge. Okay. Hedge? If the oil price goes up, then you know Chinese uh, companies will, will not suffer that much. If the oil price goes down, then Chinese companies will not suffer that much. So uh, this is a kind of hedging policy, uh, and I think um, you know for Russia this is good. You know you have people have a stake in the you know uh, uh, oil business, in the natural gas business. Does China invest in the same way in its African investments? Isn't this um, unusual? I don't think it's unusual. I think China has made uh, Chinese companies have made investment where ever they see uh, in their interests. Okay? Uh, and also, uh, it's not a, a zero-sum game. You know? We're talking about Russia attracting more investment uh, to uh, a sector that, uh, that's very important for Russia. Mm. And also, I think it's a matter of whether Russia can make good use of such kind of investment. Okay? You have more investment, you make more money, and then you, you know, the question is how you are going to make good use of the money you have earned uh, to develop, uh, to, to, to engage in diverse development. Uh, uh, so in the past, I think uh, Russia uh, has a problem uh, in that regard. You know, when the oil prices went up, you know, Russia prospered, but then... But the uh, Chinese are not attaching any, it's not like the IMF, they're not attaching any strings to any of these investments. They're not saying to Central Europe, uh, Central Asia, you have to put you know, democratic reforms in place or not. Saying to, to Russia, you have to beef up your corporate governance or, or anything like that. It's, it's more, put the money in, work together, because we have a common goal. Right, right. Uh, I think China does not have anything to impose on others. Uh, China believes that if others are prosperous, it's good for us. Mm. Uh, you have a larger market, uh, you have more consumers, <laughs> uh, 
Why not? Make more money. Yeah. Last question, just quickly. Um, North Korea has come into the news uh, and has become sort of tense. China, of course, has a good relation with it. So does Russia. Um, how do you see that playing out? I mean, that actually promotes both countries on the international stage because the West, particularly Trump, you know, they've got nowhere to go in so much as they've got no intermediaries in order to talk with North Korea. But it does seem like this could end very badly. Do you think that's realistically going to happen? We are concerned, I think. Um, we have tried very hard uh, to try to persuade our North Korean friends mm. to uh, adopt a different track uh, of, uh, uh, of obtaining security. Uh, I mean, you know, we can get a deal okay, uh, with which the North Koreans would give up nuclear weapons in exchange for security guarantees and also economic assistance and normalization of relations be between North this, Korea. This is possible that they would Of course, of course, we got, almost got the deal uh, in 2008. Actually, uh, Chris Hill came to my school to give a talk uh, in, I think, around March. Uh, he was so exuberant. He said, the deal is done, you know. What is left are technical things. So he was uh, optimistic that he would be able to attend the Olympics <laughs> in time, uh, you know, finishing all this, uh, putting all this behind. But um, for one reason or another, uh, North Korea uh, decided against it. So it's a great pity, yeah. And I think the, on the US side, on the South Korean side, um, even on the Japan side, I think, uh, they are willing to make a deal with, uh, with North Korea. But the problem is, North Korea doesn't trust anyone. <laughs> well, hopefully, calm heads will prevail. Professor Jim, very, very nice to talk to you. Thank sure. you very much. All the best. Great talking to you. <laughs>